Super Talk Mississippi media production. If you're feeling anxious about your investments with all the economic volatility and chaos in Washington, tune in to Super Talk Jackson on Wednesdays from 9 to 10 a.m. and Sundays from 8.30 to 9.30 a.m. for Element Wealth Radio with Jeremy Nelson. Learn more at myelementwealth.com. Today we're glad to have with us a, a local person, someone that's well known to most of the community, Mr. Ken Powell. Uh, as we recognize our veterans of this area who have served their country during time of conflict, and, uh, and Ken brings us up to one of the more recent issues our country has faced back during Desert Storm and even enduring freedom. And uh, Ken, it's good to have you with us this morning. Thanks a lot, Mr. Jack. Uh, proud to be here. Well, you know, I, I've known you for a long time and actually got to know you during Desert Storm, even though I, I wasn't there with you. I was praying for you because I... I knew that you were in a leadership position, and I was praying for you while you were uh, overseas. Uh, but we want to we want to kind of go back and start and establish the fact that you are a hometown boy. You're one of our Brookhaven Lincoln County individuals, and you were born in Brookhaven, if I'm not correct. Is that right? Uh, actually, I was born in Prentice, Mississippi, oh, okay. but we moved to Brookhaven. I uh, lived at Union Church for a while. Moved to Brookhaven when I was about four years old, and I lived the rest of my life here. Okay, so graduated from Brookhaven Academy in 1977. 1977. And then what I found interesting, you had the opportunity, which is a, a special opportunity for those who, who are able to. You were able to uh, make application and was accepted to West Point, the military academy. I, I was fortunate to get an appointment uh, out of high school to the military academy. And I uh, spent my four years there and graduated in 1981, at which time I was commissioned into the Army. Now, we probably could spend a good bit of time talking about your experiences at West Point, because <laughs> from what I've read about uh, those four years, they're very intense, uh, and they are to, uh, and, uh, you know, I guess in reality, they do weed out those who may not be officer material and, and have leadership skills. Uh, but it is very intense, that first year being a plebe and all of the uh, things that come with that. But... And as much as I'd like to spend some time, we're not going to have – anything stands out about those four it, it, years? It, was it as intense as it, I've read? It's one of those million-dollar experiences. I wouldn't take a million dollars far. You couldn't give me a million dollars to go Do through it again. again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is an honor to have you with us and uh, uh, to be a graduate of the West Point Military Academy, uh, which has been around for a long time and turned out some incredible leaders. Um, but you, you got out of West Point. You got your commission. Um I believe second lieutenant. Correct. And uh, and then you spent some time in the in the army. Spent uh, about five and a half years on active duty. I had a five year commitment, uh, active duty commitment to begin with. And I spent about five and a half years and came back uh, December of eighty seven. I came back to Brookhaven and joined my father at RV Wall Oil Company. Right. Right. Now uh, your training after uh, graduation from the academy. Uh, where did they end up assigning you? I ended up going to Fort Riley as an ammunition officer. Uh, later, I became a special weapons officer, and I was assigned to a unit in Germany. Uh, basically, I had to make a career decision. Uh, I decided to uh, go ahead and resign and, and come back to Brookhaven as opposed to going to Germany with the, uh, with the new assignment. But I spent time at Fort Riley and time at Huntsville, Alabama at Redstone Arsenal. Okay, so you did come back. You decided to resign your commission uh, and, and stay in the reserves. And you came back to Mississippi, and you were stationed. Uh, you you were with a group here in Brookhaven. I stayed in the reserves. Uh, yes, I was at. Uh, I was in a unit in Jackson, Mississippi, for a short time, okay. uh, an ammunition unit up there, 40th Ordnance Group. And then I was fortunate to be selected to command the 296 Transportation Company here in Brookhaven, which happened to be a, a fuel transportation company. Which that particular unit touches a lot of lives because it is a local unit, and almost all, not all, but a good 
percentage, maybe the majority of the men in that group with you are from this area? I uh, had a lot of folks from Lincoln County. I uh, had some from down in Pike County. I uh, had them as far away as Laurel and, uh, and Jackson. I actually had a few uh, that came from Alabama to be part of the unit. And people don't realize how essential the reserves are to our country uh, because a lot of times, because the government doesn't keep a huge military force, uh, it's when something happens, uh, that's what the reserves are for. Uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm was the first time since World War II that we'd seen an extensive mobilization of the reserves, the National Guard. Uh, it was, became apparent that they were an integral part of the overall service, the overall uh, military capability of armed forces. And, of course, that's been even more apparent evident. Uh, and evident uh, with uh, Iraqi freedom and, of course, the war in Afghanistan. And, and, you know, not to take anything away from the regular Army, but I'm telling you, the reserves are just as sharp as the regular guys. They go, may not be full-time uniform, but uh, they're, they're, the demands that are placed on them, the, the efficiency of the training, uh, the reserve units are, are an integral part of the whole overall military presence our country has absolutely there's there's no question we could not go to war today without the reserve forces and of course i'm talking about the army reserve and the national guard you could not go to war without them exactly well you're back in brookhaven you've got a a, a, you know a great position right here you got the you know the the company in in uh, your hometown and uh and everything's going right along and then we start to have issues in the middle east and and uh, uh desert shield Turns into Desert Storm. And you were act- actually called up uh, during Desert Shield, am I correct? Or? Yeah, we, uh, we had just been on an exercise that summer uh, that uh, simulated uh, an event in the Middle East involving Iraq. And, uh, and it, was, it, was very, it was eerily similar to what reality ended up being uh, just a few months you later. Think was, somebody knew something uh, already I, and they well, were kind of prepping yeah, y'all? <laughs> it's obvious that the Intel guys had some That's ideas, right. you know, that, uh, right. what was afoot. And, of course, that August, I think, is when the invasion, the, the Iraqi forces invaded Kuwait. We came back from AT about that time because I remember having uh, several meetings with my soldiers and my key leadership about, hey, guys, this is what we've been training for. This is the scenario that we've uh, studied and, and rehearsed. Uh, don't think we're not going to be part of this because we most likely are. And sure enough, in uh, September, we got our initial alert order. In October, we got the, the, the green light. And uh, in November, we hit country. So you, you went to uh – where did you actually go into? Was it Saudi Arabia? Or? We went into Saudi Arabia okay. uh, initially. Uh, most all the forces were staging in Saudi Arabia, a uh, very strong ally of ours in that region. Uh, they, of course, were very concerned about what Saddam Hussein's intentions may be. It had already taken the oil fields in Kuwait. Uh, there was some uh, fear that he was going to push into northern Saudi Arabia right. and perhaps even further. Mm-hmm. So they were, uh, they were very willing hosts to our forces, and that's where all the staging took place prior to the actual beginning of uh, the offensive. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about something that's interesting, and, I, and you and I alluded to this just a moment ago, right before we started recording. Um, you were, you were uh, being a, a graduate of the West Point Military Academy, you were in leadership. They were, you were expected to be a leader, uh, and, and your, your rank you know, put you as a, a company commander, and you were responsible for uh, that group of men but you're also responsible to, to uh, commanders above you that gave you assignments. And, and there's a fine balance, and, and it goes back to a couple of movies that I remember uh, over the years. One was uh, 12 O'Clock High by, with Gregory Peck. Another one was uh, Command Decision by, uh, with Clark, Clark Gable. And they were both about men in leadership positions, commanders of groups, large groups of men, making the kind of decisions that – 
affect not only accomplishing their mission, but also the lives of a lot of men. That has to be something that I know you had some of the finest training in the world, but it had to be something that was really took up a lot of your thought process. Oh, no question about it. It's you know, a very humbling experience. Of course, we do train for that. We study that. We, we understand what the issues are. I think I mentioned to you earlier that one of our little cliches was, uh, you know, mission first, soldiers always. Uh, you've got a mission. You've got to accomplish, uh, accomplish that mission. There's no, you know, if ands, or buts about that. But you also have to take care of your soldiers and be mindful of how that mission impacts them and the potential hazards and, and so forth and risks that are involved. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's very difficult at times. I mean, uh, you receive a uh, mission uh, from higher command, and uh, you have some latitude usually uh, for input. Uh, to try and make sure that you have the resources and your folks are properly trained and equipped and so forth and so on. But in the end, it's your mission, and uh, you have to accomplish it, and you have to do it with the soldiers and resources, uh, resources available. And, uh, yes, sometimes it, uh, it means asking people to do things that uh, obviously they would rather not do. And uh, you just have to, you know, you have to uh, rely on your subordinates. Uh, you have to uh, rely on your training. And in my particular case, I relied on a lot of prayer, I can assure you. You mentioned praying for us earlier, and I used to tell everybody that was the strongest weapon we had as far as I was concerned was the prayers that went up on our behalf because I'm, I'm very serious about that. I, find, I found myself relying on my faith uh, more so than ever before in trying to execute the missions that I'd been given. I can't imagine going into any kind of conflict either as, a, as, as a, a person on the front line confronting the enemy face-to-face or even a position such as yours where you were leading those men, but yet at the same time making decisions that affected hundreds uh, of men. I don't know how you do it without a lot of prayer, without your faith being the, the source of your strength. Uh, let me tell you a quick story. I came home after the war. I know I'm jumping ahead a little, uh, a little okay. bit, but let me, let me tell you the story. I came home. I had the opportunity to speak at some clubs and organizations. And at one club, I, you know, I, I testified to my Christian faith and how important that was for me during the course of our deployment. And somebody asked me, said, uh, General Schwarzkopf, have you ever heard him mention whether he was a Christian or not? I said, you know, I really haven't. I don't know where he stands in that regard. But I couldn't imagine, given my level of responsibility, which was minor compared to his level of responsibility, and knowing how I had to rely on my Christian faith, I couldn't imagine being in his position and being as successful as he was in that position without having a strong Christian faith. A few months later, I happened to see an interview with General Schwarzkopf, and they were talking about this and that and the other. And I remember at some point they got talking about reading material that he may have had that he studied, et cetera, while he was deployed. And he said by his bedside every night there were two books. And I think one was Clausewitz on War, I think was one of them, some, some book about the military art and the history of the military art and so forth. And the other was the Bible. And he made the comment, I can assure you my Bible was the better read. <laughs> and so immediately I checked the block. I said, okay, I figured his That's much. exactly and right. It almost had to happen. Well, you know, that's, that's, that's incredible because, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, if I'm going to be in the military, I want to be an officer. I want to be way back behind everybody. I don't want to be out there where anybody's shooting at me or dropping bombs on me. And they don't think about the difficulty of the position that you're in. Not only yourself, and I'm not talking about you, Kim, but I'm talking about any person who leads men into any kind of conflict. It's, it's, it's something where without faith, I don't know how you do it. Um, all right. Let, we're, we're, Desert Storm is about to crank up here. And, and I, I still remember that, that night when we got the word in the States that the invasion had actually started and, and the troops were moving across. Your role and your company, I, I thought, was really interesting and uh, in, in what all they had to do during that time. Give us a little brief synopsis of what, what all was taking place with Ken Pyle and, 
and and the guys from right here in our hometown. We were a fuel transport uh, company. We had sixty-five thousand gallon uh, gallon tankers uh, with five-ton tractors pulling those tankers, uh, and we were responsible for supplying fuel to the force. Uh, modern armies use a lot of resources, and and they use no other resource, mm-hmm. no no greater resource than fuel. I mean, you just absolutely have to have fuel. And so, prior to the beginning of the war, we were uh, involved in moving forward. Uh, fuel forward to various uh, operating bases uh, that were at the line of departure where the forces were actually going to kick off the offensive, as well as supporting ongoing operations all over the the, the theater. Uh, So we were just pushing thousands and thousands of gallons of fuel every day, uh, ongoing missions, I mean 24-7, getting ready uh, for the push forward. Uh, Once the offensive began, of course, uh, those forces rapidly depleted the fuel that had been prepositioned forward and then we were involved in pushing fuel into kuwait and into parts of iraq actually southern iraq uh, to support the the ongoing offensive well we're going to take a short break we're honored to have with us today <clears throat> i guess i can say retired now it's hard to say you're yeah. retired ken didn't think uh, i'd be that old but i retired <laughs> colonel uh, ken powell a local boy uh, who's consented to come in and visit with us today one of our one of our honored veterans, and uh, we'll be right back in just a moment. You know that nowadays, most people go online to look at a business before they spend their money. What if the online information about your business is incorrect, or even worse, not very flattering? If your online presence isn't great, you may be losing customers. STMM Digital's trusted and highly trained team is the answer. We're ready to work with you to help your business capitalize on the power of digital marketing. Call 601-991-2305 or go to stmmdigital.com to get started today. Today, we're glad to uh, have with us, honored to have with us, uh, Mr. Ken Pyle, retired colonel, United States Army, who was uh, company commander here uh, in Brookhaven of the reserve unit and uh, has consented to come in and share with us his experiences. Uh, a graduate of the West Point Military Academy, uh, a veteran of Desert Storm, and, and actually, Ken, I believe you were involved in Enduring Freedom operation as well. Correct, correct. We, uh, I, I had at that time moved to the 3rd Personnel Command in Jackson, Mississippi. I was the operations officer for the command. It was a general level command. And ultimately it became the personnel command for the theater of operations. We were the enduring theater personnel command. And uh, so I had the opportunity to deploy with them during, during that operation. Well, okay. Now, let's just for a second talk a little bit about, uh, you know, I had a brother in, involved in Desert Storm and Enduring Freedom. What was it like for you guys? I know being uh, uh, tankers, driving trucks filled with fuel all across the desert was probably a, a, a hazardous task, for no, no doubt. But uh, what was the living conditions like? I guess you were in a tent most of the time, and you were on the move most of the time. And Tell us a little bit about and, and kind of blend both Desert Storm and Enduring Freedom. Well, uh, obviously, uh, uh, you know, Desert Storm was an off-the-cuff, uh, you know, on-the-run type deployment, uh, and, and, and there was really no facilities to, to house or to support us whatsoever uh, at the beginning of, of the uh, mobilization. So, yeah, we moved into whatever kind of temporary arrangements we could find. Uh, mostly we lived in tents. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had uh, 30-man tents that we lived in, and we had smaller eight-man tents that some of your officers and NCOs would live in. Uh, a little bit separate, you know, get a little separation from from the men that you were actually in charge of. Uh, we did at one point uh, live at a place we called the farm, 
which was a, uh, a farmhouse that uh, mm. the U.S. Army had gone out and procured in some shape, form, or fashion. And they brought little, man, they looked like tool sheds is what they looked like, but they brought them in, put them together, and called them barracks. So we moved into those for a little while, lived like that. Uh, we eventually ended up living at Al Jabel, uh, living on a Marine compound. And uh, the, the senior master gunny in the logistics section of that expeditionary force was uh, Master Gunny Sergeant Bowie. I cannot think of his first name now, but he was one of our own Bowies from Lincoln County right really? here. Uh, one of my soldiers, uh, Sergeant Charlie Sanders' brother-in-law, was in that organization. Wow. We got all new tents, <laughs> got all new heaters for all our tents, uh, got pressure washers for all our vehicles. We it, lived pretty fat at Al Jabelle. It's good and to it know And it was because somebody, of Master Gunnery Bowie and uh, Charlie Sanders' uh, brother-in-law. Oh, thank you, Lord, and, for uh, Lincoln and, County connection. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, we were living there, uh, and we were kind of split up because we had people all over the place. I had people in Bahrain supporting the Air Force over there. I had folks up at a little place called Al Masab that was, you know, we were continuing to push fuel forward from there. I actually was at Al Masab the night the offensive started. Mm. And uh, that was quite a light show, you can imagine, because the B 52s came in. And, you know, we were still probably 40 miles away, and the ground was rumbling, and it was, sounded like just continuous thunder. And I could only think of, you know, what kind of devastation was being uh, brought to bear uh, there at the, uh, you know, at the, uh, at the point of impact. It didn't surprise me at all that the Iraqi soldiers gave up in mass because we just overwhelmed them with our firepower. I think they never had any idea that we could no. bring such to battle. No idea. But uh, so yeah, we you know we had folks scattered all over, and we lived in anything from tents to these temporary barracks to, like I said, Al Jabel. We were in uh, brand new tents and uh, and living pretty <laughs> fat there. And uh, in Iraq, uh, there was a little more infrastructure uh, because we we went into Kuwait initially, mm -hmm. and they were actually building a uh, a, a base there called Erfjan which was being built with the intention of housing on a permanent basis an army brigade. Okay. Uh, it was going to be a, you know, I don't know exactly what the arrangements were going to be, but I, I, I suppose it was going to be a rotating brigade, you know, one brigade come in for a tour sure. and then another sure. on top of it. So there were some facilities there in place for us. Uh, we initially lived in tents, uh, but they were nice tents. I mean, they, they had them set up, air-conditioned, the whole nine yards. And then later we moved into hard-stand billets. Now, that was in Kuwait. And once the war began and we moved into Iraq, you know, it was a whole other story. I had the honor of being selected to lead our advance party into uh, Baghdad. And uh, we moved in the week after Baghdad uh, uh, was initially uh, under our control. Uh, moved in uh, on top of Baghdad International Airport, as a matter of fact, while mm -hmm. it was still a combat objective. And we just lived wherever we could. I mean, we slept on the side of the road. Uh, we finally procured a burned-out building that we called the Crack House uh, because it looked like a crack house. <laughs> that's, what, that's what it looked like. And that's where we lived the rest of the time that we were deployed to Iraq. And, uh, and of course, it built up over time, and uh, they ended up putting in. We were living off MREs and, and, and whatnot, uh, boodle boxes from home, whatever we could get uh, for the first month or so. And then later we put up our own uh, field mess tent, and then later they had a consolidated field mess tent. So conditions improved as it, were uh, as it went along. Tell me, tell me just briefly, tell us a little bit about the reception you received from the Iraqi people. Probably was different, or was it similar, if you can contrast Desert Storm and Enduring Freedom? Uh, okay, and, and that's, that's a good contrast to draw there. Uh, in Kuwait, uh, we had a, uh, a very westernized nation, mm -hmm. uh, a very pro-Western nation that had been invaded and brutalized by its neighbor, exactly. Iraq. Uh, we moved in and were absolutely seen as the liberators. 
uh, we were seen as, you know, the good guys. Uh, one of my fondest memories is rolling in. We we were part, uh, again, I was fortunate to uh, to lead a convoy into Kuwait as part of the first supply convoy uh, into, into the city after liberation. It was the morning after liberation. We, mm. we were part of the first supply convoy in there. And uh, we, uh, we rolled in, and there was a lot of jubilation. Uh, some of the greatest pictures I have of that whole experience is, you know, the, the, the people, you know, waving the flag and chanting USA. Mm. And they were all wanting to have pictures taken with us and just, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it, was, it really made you feel like you had done a good thing. And, uh, and there was no question that we were on the side of right, no question about it. In Iraq, it was a mixed bag. It was a sure. mixed bag uh, because we were the invaders. Sure. You know, shape it any way you want to. We were the, we were the invaders. And uh, some of them uh, re- received us very warmly. Uh, you could tell that they were you know, very thankful that the Saddam regime had been brought to an end. Uh, they were hopeful for a better future. Some of them were very resentful. There was no doubt there was animosity and antagonism there. And, of course, it manifested itself later on with the insurgency and and, all the issues that we've had to deal with there. Uh, I think overall, I got the feeling overall, that the uh, majority of the um, middle-class, well-educated Iraqis were glad to see the Saddam regime brought to an end. Uh, They were still dubious about our presence there. And they just had a certain reservation about sure. foreigners on their soil, mm-hmm. but uh, I think overall, in the end, it was a it was a a, a warm embrace, uh, certainly a friendly embrace, and hopefully we have left a better place than what we found. What about enduring freedom? Well, now that, that I, I was talking about, talking about yeah, that, I, the, yeah, yeah, that was back. yeah, that you know okay. the, the initial yeah, what I was talking about going into Kuwait and kicking them out of Kuwait, you know, we were the liberators, okay. no doubt. Okay. When we moved into Iraq. Uh, to throw Saddam out of power. That's right. You know, again, a mixed bag, a mixed bag. But in the end, in the end, I think the handoff was a one between friends. And uh, hopefully we have an ally there now. Hopefully we do. Yeah. Uh, Ken, absolutely interesting stuff that you're sharing with us today. Uh, one of the things that when you and I were talking about setting this time up uh, was the relationship uh, between uh, any man who leads and the men who follow. And I, I, I'm probably accurate in saying you can't always count on that being a good relationship, but I think it's in, in, in cases such as yours, uh, there's a special bond between uh, uh, the officer who's making the decisions and, and leading and uh, the men who are carrying out the task. The, really, when it gets right down to it, the ones who are doing the job. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, special relationships that endure even stronger today that came out of those experiences, I'm sure. Uh, you know, any success any leader has in any, any capacity is, is based on the subordinates that they have working for them. Uh, in a military organization, especially one that has been tasked to go to war and has had to conduct, execute, and hopefully successfully uh, fulfill uh, combat missions, uh, any leader knows that, you know, he's absolutely dependent upon his uh, subordinate leaders and the soldiers. Uh, the men and women signed under them to make it happen. And, uh, and I'm certainly conscious of that. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. I, uh, had the, my biggest fear would have been to uh, let uh, my men, uh, and I say men uh, generically there because I had men and women assigned, right. to let my soldiers down and to fail in the mission. Uh, that was probably the, uh, the biggest burden I carried. I had some outstanding troops 
who despite my inadequacies uh, were able to uh, complete every mission uh, with a high degree of success. Uh, at the time that we did the last accounting, we had moved more gallons than any other fuel truck company in the, uh, in the theater. Uh, we had traveled several hundred thousand miles without a single fatal accident. Mm. We had several accidents, <laughs> and we had several incidents, but none fatal. And uh, in the end, uh, we accomplished our mission, and we brought everybody home safely. And, uh, and it was a tribute to the, to the men and women that were working for me. Uh, you know, I could start naming names in a hurry. And I don't want to do that because I'd leave so many out. out. You know, I'd leave yeah. so many out. But there are guys right here in Brookhaven, Mississippi, that they could call me at 3 a.m. Uh, tomorrow morning. And I would show up with whatever they needed uh, and do whatever I had to uh, to help them in any way possible. Because I know that, uh, that my success was dependent upon them being willing to do the things I asked them to do. And, you know, my retiring as a full colonel was a testament not to anything I did. Right. I was kind of a dummy. I was generally the dumbest one in the room. I can assure you that. I, don't, I do not say that flippantly. I mean, I'd sit there and throw it out there, and my soldiers would get to digging around and come up with solutions. I was like, yeah, right. That's it. You know, That's that, it. I think that'll work. And it would. And, uh, and if I dared start dictating, usually, you know, we'd end up fumbling the ball and have to back up and say, okay, guys, what now? And I mean all that very sincerely. But I will tell you that, you know, some of the greatest compliments I've ever had uh, came from different soldiers um, that I've seen in the years subsequent. And they'd walk up and say, hey, sir, do you remember me? And in most cases, I would. A couple of cases, I didn't because they would be 18, 19-year-old kids when I saw That's them right. last. And now they're you know, 35, 38-year-old right. men. And anyway, at some point, they would say, well, sir, I'm just glad I was over here with you. Wow. If you don't think that doesn't humble you, if you Absolutely. don't think that doesn't yeah. touch you. Absolutely. Because I'm sitting here thinking, wow, I was the most bogus guy in the world. But I was trying to do the right thing. But it's, um, but it's still a testament, a testimony of, of their confidence in you. Uh, and it may have been because of your style of leadership, but, and there are multitudes of styles of leadership. Uh, but I can remember my brother even saying when men would say they wanted to fly with him. You mm-hmm. know, it's the same thing you're talking about. They wanted to be in his group or his squadron or his command. Yeah. Uh, no one could I ever give it, me a higher compliment. Uh, that than that is that. the highest praise for an officer or a commander of any kind of a, a group of military personnel. Oh, and for any of those that are out there that are saying, well, by golly, I wish I hadn't been out over there with you. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. I hear you too. <laughs> You know, it's just like I've heard so many times and read in so many books, you know, you, the, the highest accomplishment was to perform your mission, to accomplish your mission at the highest level of excellence and, and performance and bring your men home. You know, it's unfortunate that great leaders can't all say that just because of the task that they're, they're given. But in your case, Ken, uh, I think God had his hand on you, prepared you and put you in that position so that you could lead these men at that time. You know, there's no there's no coincidences in all these things. You're being there when they needed a company commander and being able to for God to use you and take you over there and safely bring all your crew back and all your men back. That's a pretty incredible thing. And and uh, and and really, I'm so grateful to have you with us to come in and share uh, your experiences. And you know, we could probably talk another half couple of days, half a day. You made a comment just then about you know how God's hand is on all these things. Uh, believe me, I've, I've made this comment many, many times. Uh, the one thing about my military career that I can look back on and just you know offer testimony after testimony on was that God always surrounded me with the right people at the right mm-hmm. time. Uh, he always put together the team that I was fortunate uh, and honored to be a part of. 
And, uh, and it was because his hand was on that. And it was because he put that team together. And it was because of those people who were part of that team that, you know, I'm, I'm here today and able to look back and say, you know, we did have, we did have some success and, uh, and we did bring everybody home. But I've made that very comment, that, you know, God's hand was always moving. He always put together the team. I was always blessed by being surrounded by great people. And it was by God's hand. I can't even give you the details of how, right. you know, at last minute this one moved from here to there and whatnot. They ended up in my unit and they ended up being, you know, one of the stalwarts that I just leaned what on. You needed. And just what I needed, exactly. And, uh, you know, God's hand was a move. Uh, well, a it's, it's, uh, it's obvious uh, that uh, it was a successful mission. And, uh, you know, we really, as, as Christians, uh, and in the Bible Belt of America, we really need to be praying that God will continue to put men in positions of leadership who will look to that source that you had uh, uh, and Schwarzkopf alluded to. I had a chance to speak out Enterprise at uh, uh, Veterans Day. They had a wonderful program out there, and I just really want to give a you know a shout-out to all the people. And, again, I don't want to start calling names. I'll leave somebody out and hurt some feelings. But they did a wonderful program, as do a lot of the schools sure. in the area. And I had a chance to, uh, to speak. And one of the things I made a comment was to the effect that, you know, one of the greatest blessings America – has had through the years is that God has always blessed us with men and women that were willing when the bell rang they were willing to stand up take their place do their duty for God and country and uh, I just pray that we're always blessed with such men and women because that has that's been the greatest treasure this country's ever had is that we've had men and women when when called they answered the call and I hope that he continues to bless us in that way we need men of your caliber and 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 those others and and the men that made up your company and uh, we're just grateful for your service. And, and it's been an honor for me to sit here and share with you, Ken, and uh, um, as you've shared your experiences during Desert Storm and Enduring Freedom and your service to your country and wearing that, that very special uniform. And uh, uh, we're just uh, grateful as a country. And uh, let me just say to you, as it's been said before, on behalf of America, on behalf of uh, the citizens of our great country, we are grateful for your service as well as the service of your men who responded when the bell rang. Well, I appreciate that, and thank you all for what you all are doing here at Super Talk. I think this is great. We need to capture uh, the history that some of these people can provide because, you know, a lot of our World War II vets, I mean, they're, they're, they're going by the wayside. We're losing them rapidly, and I just appreciate what you all are doing. It's, it's a great thing. Well, it's all a part of our recognition of the 10th anniversary of the Military Memorial Museum here in Brookhaven to, to, to honor and recognize and not glorify war, but to honor and recognize men just like Ken Powell uh, and, and the countless others from Brookhaven and Lincoln County that just put on the uniform when, it was, when there was a need. And, uh, again, thank you, Ken, for coming in and sharing with us this morning. Well, thanks for having me. A Super Talk Mississippi yeah. media production.